Hello, and welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60-plus companies, and the director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the people who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. Remember, all of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Google Play. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes, leave a five-star review, and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Our guest this week, and actually next week, because we're going to do a two-parter here, is Spencer Ante. Again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss part two next week. Now I'm going to send it up to Dave to give you a little bit more background on Spencer. Dave? Regardless of the industry or discipline you're working in, it's really easy to overlook its history and origins. It's easy to overlook all that's gone on before you arrived on the scene. And like so many of us, you just see what's going on around you, you listen to the prevailing wisdom, and you just do your thing as best you can. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. And this is true for most, whether it be professional sports or grandmaster chess, or if you're in the military or a journalist or business or medicine, you name it. But what I've noticed is a lot of people who are at the top of their game in any of these arenas turn out to be keen students of history and the history of those practitioners who came before them. I remember as a kid, my brother and I would watch Mike Tyson fight. He turned the boxing world upside down. He was unstoppable for a while. And it turns out that in addition to having this ridiculous talent and the Spartan training he conducted with his trainer, Customato, already at age 18, Tyson was one of the great connoisseurs of the old boxing greats. He religiously studied all the old footage of former world champions, knew their styles and strengths and weaknesses intimately. Still to this day, Tyson has the greatest archive of fight films of anyone out there. And then there's Magnus Carlsen, the chess world champion. He also took over his sport by storm at a very early age. They call him the Mozart of chess. He's obviously a massive talent. They say he has a photographic memory. But he also spent years studying the games of the great masters who came before him. He knows their styles. He read about their lives and on and on. So what about venture capital? These days, I point to Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. It's rare that they're not talking about some historical pattern or some book they've read on economics, technology cycles, etc. And their firm obviously attracts those people with a similar bent. Just check out Balaji Srinivasan's tweets of late, or Benedict Evans's analyses, or take a peek at Chris Dixon's blog posts if you hadn't have a look in a while. All of them are tackling the philosophy, the trends, the cycles, the historical sweep, the Telian secrets. So I'm a big proponent of getting away from reading blogs about what time so-and-so wakes up in the morning and what they ate for breakfast and how long they meditate and what $10 cup of designer tea they sip. It's all a distraction from my point of view. And I figure that from time to time on this podcast, we can have some headspace to get away from the hurly-burly of the mobile phones and the tablets and the emails and the blogs on SAS and CAC and LTV and get some real time with some deep thinkers, the likes of guests like Jerry Newman or Naval Ravikant. And that's why I was so pleased when this episode's guest, Spencer Ante, agreed to come on Venture Studio. I'm very grateful to him. Spencer's a 20-year veteran of the tech industry. He's an award-winning journalist with many years as a senior writer in the tech group at the Wall Street Journal. And he's the co-founder and president of Who We Use, a mobile app that helps connect you with friends and neighbors in your local area to share recommendations of local services. But he's also written an amazing book, A Labor of Love. 
It's called Creative Capital, George Dorio and the Birth of Venture Capital. I highly recommend everyone go out and buy this book. It's the story of the first professional venture capitalist in the world. The guy who literally made up this industry. The guy who launched the first venture fund ever in 1946. He was a visionary. Very few understood what he was doing. The SEC fought him tooth and nail throughout the decades he was running his venture fund. His LPs nagged him incessantly for immediate dividends well before the startups he, were, he was backing even had a chance to grow. But he stayed true to his vision and he pushed forward relentlessly. He was eventually vindicated by one of his early bets having a massive IPO for that time. Now, Spencer spent three years of his life capturing the essence and personality and character of this man, Dorio. And now we get to hear him tell this amazing story of the origins of an industry, venture capital, that has become the engine of innovation the world over. So let's head on up to the Venture Studio office and hear the story that Spencer's got for us. In the office, baby. Spencer, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, you know, at Venture Studio, we're about showcasing great New York City investors, whether they be angels or venture capitalists. But also, we like to have interesting people who are part of the tech and investing ecosystem like you. You've written this absolutely incredible book, Creative Capital, Georges Doriot, and the Birth of Venture Capital. And it takes us back to the beginning, to the origins of venture capital, the founder of it all. And uh, I just thought it would be amazing to have you on uh, for you to give us a grounding in, in what's going on. My, my first question for you is, what inspired you to, to even do this? This is a huge undertaking. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I've always admired, you know, your work and what you've done for New York and entrepreneurship. So I, I, thank you. Um, so yeah, what inspired me to write this book? I uh, I was a tech journalist and a financial journalist for uh, almost 20 years before I started this book. And I'm a history buff as well. And you know, after you do something for 10 or 15 years, you start wondering, you know, writing about startups, writing about technology, writing about innovation, all these amazing things, the birth of the internet in the late nineties, and then the birth of social media, uh, revolution in, in the early two thousands, um, coming out of this, you know, the nine 11, uh, and, and, and then the tech bust, I started, I actually started getting a little bit bored with the tech industry. There was, there was this little lull in like 2004, 2005, where, you know, it didn't seem like a lot of things were happening on the surface. Uh, so I started thinking about, you know, where did this whole thing start? Where, does, where did, the, where did entre, the U.S. entrepreneurial economy, venture capital starts? How did the whole thing start? All right. And I started talking to people about that in the industry look, with entrepreneurs, investors, et cetera. And people started mentioning this guy named George Dorio. I never heard of Dorio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started looking into this guy and I, I found out that, uh, he founded this venture capital company called American research and development after the war. He, he financed digital equipment corporation, which was like the first really successful startup, um, that went public. 
And, and, and so the more I looked into this guy, the more I got interested in who he was as a person and as a, as a business businessman. And it occurred to me that, wow, this could be an incredible story. It is an incredible story and no, and it's never been told. I, I found out that there were some people that tried to write biographies about him that, that didn't come to fruition. And then I just kind of became obsessed with, with doing this project because um, it was a great story that never been told. And as a journalist, that's really what you're always looking for, you know. Right. Um, so I put together a proposal and uh, I worked with I, – I, I learned how, to, how the book business works, which is a very archaic kind of uh, profession. And I got a really good agent named Christy Fletcher uh, who was the agent for The Nanny Diaries. I don't know if you remember The Nanny Diaries, but it was a very successful book. But she had a big nonfiction uh, practice too. And she helped me sell it to Harvard business school press. Uh, and then I was off and running and that was in like, gosh, that was like in 2006. And I, I, I was on, I was working at business week at the time and I was able to, uh, convince my, uh, bosses to give me a book leave. It was a tradition at business week of journalists who had earned their credit and credibility with, with their, you know, the higher ups that they would, if you, if you got a, a book deal, they would let you go on book leave. So I negotiated a book leave for six months. Uh, I took my advance and I basically went off and I did a bunch of research to, to sort of get the book going. Um, and I wrote a first draft too. And during that time, and then, you know, like I said, it took a couple of years and then the book came out, um, in 2008. You say it took a long time because it was more than that six month leave because, you know, when you read the acknowledgements in this book, it's like, U.S. Military Archives, Library of Congress, National Archives, Manuscript Collection, Oral Histories, Newsletters, Pamphlets, DVDs, and then because many people that uh, he knew were still alive and are still alive, a lot of personal interviews. You were in France. You were at HBO. You were all over. I mean, how long did this take you? Yeah. So this is not a uh – kind of ripped from the pages kind of book. This is a real historical biography. So I, I really had to become um, a, a historian, which was, which is probably the scariest part of this whole thing. Um, the second scariest part was I was writing a book about a person who was not alive. Right. Okay. But when you think about hist- what historians do, that's pretty much what they do. They write about dead people. Right. Right. Uh, right. And it, so the question is like, how do you tell the story of a person or a community or a society without being able to talk to them? Um, and the wonderful thing about history is you learn there's all these uh, remnants of history, right? Um, and, and Dorio was an incredible record keeper. So I found out that, and that was part of the challenge of actually even figuring out this book was possible, was thinking like, what are the materials I can use to tell this story? And so I found out there was an incredible trove of materials at the Library of Congress. Um, uh, Dorio's papers were held there which mostly focused on his time during the war when he was a general during World War II. Um, I also uh, accessed a whole series of papers uh, at the Baker Library in Harvard, where Dorio was a professor, where he kept incredible notes. Then there was an, another um, critical collection of papers um, from the MIT that were basically his personal papers. I see. That, that, that had all the material about ARD and his, you know, uh, all the other things he was doing in his life, he founded INSEAD, the, the business right. school of France. Uh, but a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and so I took, I reached, those are the three primary collections. Then I also hired research assistants to, to go through collections at other libraries 
like the, the, there's a library in Texas where I had some guy look um, at the papers of George Bush, right? Because right. George Bush, uh, 41, George W. Uh, uh, Sr. Um, founded an oil company, Zapata Oil, that Dorio financed. And in another right. interesting Right. <laughs> I remember that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and also, I, you know, the interviews were, were, were incredibly important, as you would imagine. I interviewed, I think, close to 100 people about you know, so the, although Dorio was not alive, every, a lot of people that he touched and interacted with were alive. So they were critical. The people I've interviewed people who worked at the venture firm, um, people that worked with him in the military, people that worked with him uh, in the portfolio companies. I interviewed many entrepreneurs for this. Uh, and, and, and so you take all this material. And I went to his house in France. Right. His, his, his niece and his grandniece were incredibly gracious. They invited me to his ancestral home. He lives in a town. Um, in a Parisian suburb called Cordoba. Uh, and I actually went to his home and, and saw the room that he grew up in. That, that was amazing. <laughs> so like you take all these different things and all these data points and you kind of string them together in a story. And it took, I think about three and a half years total wow. for me to do it. But, um, you know, that's the kind of work that you need to put into something that's historical, um, and a story that's never been told. Uh, no, truly amazing. A labor of love. Um, it's a great, great gift to the entrepreneurship community and anyone interested in venture capital. Um, and, you know, for the folks listening, you know, so many of us run around and just do our daily lives and investors you are doing, trying to get into deals, talking to people, this and that. This is the guy who <clears throat> developed the whole framework. And we're going to get into this. And it's just like in any industry, whether it be sports or medicine or journalism, it's so, I think it's so important to know what came before and what we can learn from <clears throat> the origins and, and, and the pioneers who made this all happen. And, and we'll dive into that. Uh, d d I noticed that you could have written another book potentially on the or ancient origins of venture capital, if you want to put it that way, because I'll, I'll read a quote here. Let me, let me read a quote from mm -hmm. the book. Um, you wrote, venture capital has existed in one form or another since the earliest days of commercial activity. The Spanish monarchy and Italian investors who financed the transatlantic voyage of Christopher Columbus were, in a sense, VCs. But it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that venture financing became a professional, large-scale industry, and the man who led that transformation was George Dorio. You could have gotten into uh, another book on whaling and how yeah. similar that was, uh, yeah. and the biblical origins of you know the 2 and 20 model of, of venture capital, the 2% management fee, the 20% carry, that has some biblical origins relating to farming, uh, and, and, and the whaling stuff. I've read stuff on whaling that showed that everyone had stakes you know, in the yeah. outcome, and the captain had a, a they, they called it the lay system, and the captain had a 12th lay, and Ishmael and Moby Dick had a 777th lay, but he negotiated for a 300th lay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. so it, 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 it was, was like centuries. Yeah, very risky venture. But, yeah. you know, this was the, as you said, the first professional approach to it, and we we should probably dive right into a guy who, as you said, uh, is not famous, is not well known for some reason, and he's yet he's this colossal figure. Um, let, let's maybe frame it. Hopefully, he's a, little, yeah. hopefully he's a little bit more famous now. Now he's more famous because of your book <laughs> and, and after this podcast too. So let's let's kind of go to Harvard, pre-war Harvard Business School. 
Okay, he is. You know, you'll, we'll get into his origins, but he's he's a professor at the Harvard Business School. He is maybe the most popular professor already. He has a massive network of students. What's going on at Harvard pre-war with Dorio? Sure. I, before I jump into that, I just want to make one point about like the sure. origins of VC. The key thing was not only that VC became a professional industry, but the, the really critical thing that separated the whaling and the and Spanish monarchy and everything else you just mentioned there was that um, Dorio created um, a fund that raised money from non-family sources. It became an institutional fund. So that was the critical difference was that people were basically investing out of their own pocketbooks for centuries and funding all these sorts of things, right? And that was great. What Dorio did was he realized there needed to be a separate entity that could basically raise money from outside sources to be able to invest in these new companies. And the, the reason that was important is because it greatly expanded the pool of capital that could be um, devoted to these new ventures, right? Um, that was that was the, the number one critical thing. The other thing that he did, I think, that was really important was, and this is a big insight that I had in terms of helping me crack this this code, was that I came to see Dorio as a leader of a social movement. Wow. Okay. What do you and mean by that? Entrepreneur- yeah. So entrepreneurship. I mean, most, when you think about um, startups and investors, you think you think of business, and it is business in a sense. But there's a there's a there's a bigger um, dimension to um, entrepreneurship, which is this social and cultural dimension, right? And that it really does put forward a new way of seeing the world and and, and interacting with the world. And that is um, a critical part, I think, of what entrepreneurship represents in our economy, in our society. Um, And that Sodorio was the leader of the social movement, right? And they were basically reacting against... um, uh, very conservative forces in in the economy and society that didn't um, allow people to take risks. Okay, you're coming. You were coming out of um, you were coming out of the war and the Great Depression. People like were very afraid to take risk. Um, there were laws that were written into investment companies that didn't allow companies to take these kinds of risks. And so Doria was in a sense, and the people that he you know um, commandeered. We're, we're fighting against that part of society. And so they, they rebelled in a sense, and they created a new way of, of, of uh, organizing economic activity, um, and, and that had cultural implications too, right? And I talk about that in the book, but I, I thought it was important that we just say that. So like, so Doria was coming out of, you know, he was born in France, and we won't, um, I'll just give you the short version of sure. this. He was born in France, and then he emigrated to the U.S. to, to, to go to Harvard Business School. Okay, and he was a student there, and he then he became was a very good student. So then he actually, after he got out of school, he went to work in investment banking, and he worked for Kuhn Loeb, which is one of the top investment banks on Wall Street in New York in like the twenties. Through that experience, he 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 gained more um, skills. He he gained more a bigger network, and he was able to secure position teaching at Harvard. So he started teaching at Harvard, and then he. He took a very unconventional approach, and that's part of what I was saying here. Like, Doria was a very unconventional person. He was very, um, you know, creative in what he did and everything he did. Um, so he created this new course at Harvard called Manufacturing. Um, most, Harvard was known for, like, the case study at the time, you know, and they developed this whole methodology around the case study. 
Uh, and the it wasn't against, against the case study, but his, his manufacturing course was more about like uh, very much more philosophical and looking at, um, you know, the philosophy of business and management. And he also was very interested in having his students get real world experience. So he set up these consulting arrangements. He, he had the students um, go out and basically uh, get internships with companies. And they would do these assignments where they would actually help try to help companies in the local area. Um, the other thing that Dorio drew on was his dad was an, actually um, an engineer and an entrepreneur. His dad was an automobile manufacturer. And so Dorio, when he was growing up, spent a lot of time in factories because his, his dad worked in factories. So he knew a lot about how factories work. And he, he took all that knowledge, too, and he put it into his manufacturing course. So he, he did all these different things. And because he was so um, different in his approach, and he's such a good communicator, his course became incredibly uh, popular. Then the last thing I would say is like, after he gained a reputation for being a great uh, business professor, he parlayed that into uh, becoming um, a director of many uh, corporations. Mm -hmm. So he became, he got slots on the boards of many corporations in the New England area. Um, and then that gave him another level of uh, power where he, and experience where he, he really saw from the inside how these companies were being run. He would advise these, these CEOs uh, on how to, how to better run and better manage their companies. Right. And the network, the social network uh, that Dorio created, that it, it deepened. And he had a lot of these guys come into the class, right, for guest lectures uh, as well, these, these titans of industry. Uh, that, that probably was new, too, at Harvard, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you teach somewhere for 30, 40 years, it's like you basically become the godfather. So, you know, and he wasn't only he, there was a lot of great professors at Harvard, but I mean, he stood out because of what I just said. And so like a lot of the people that took his class, thousands of people took his class, went on to become the leaders of corporate America. Literally, you know, guys who ran all the major corporations. Amazing. Um, and, you know, one one thing I picked up from from reading your book is uh, he w he really gave people a lot of individual attention. He had office hours. He met with them one-on-one. -on -one. He got to know them deeply. Um, he cared about his students as individuals. That, that was a big theme um, in, in his teaching, his, even his work in the military later on, like the human-centered approach this guy had. That kind of probably separated him from a lot of the, you know, your image of an aloof New England yeah. professor. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, everything that Dorio did was very uh, came from like a, a focus on humanity, um, and from his teaching to his work in the military. He realized that the military didn't even think had no conception of the of the soldier as a man or as a person, and it is, uh, everything he did in the military was like trying to focus on like the needs of of the human soldiers. The same thing with the entrepreneurs. He really took a, took a very human approach to entrepreneurship because he realized how hard it was. He used to have these sayings of like, uh, he's like, when he met with an entrepreneur, he's like, I want to know what you're thinking when you're, when you're in the bathroom in the morning and you're shaving. Because <laughs> that's really the thing that's, that's, that's really concerning you the most. He's like, I want to know what that is and let's talk about that and let's figure out how to solve that problem. You know, um, so he, you know, it's a really good point to make that. You know, it's ultimately, you know, about human beings. And that was also his philosophy and in investment was that, you know, he had this famous saying that there's the horse and the jockey, right, um, in terms of the company and, and, the, and the individuals who run it. He's like, he's like, I always prefer to bet 
if I had to make a choice between like a good horse and a good jockey, like, I always pick the good the good jockey, right? Because uh, and you hear this a lot in startups today that you know the business always changes, the business model always changes. What's important is having like a solid individual at the top of the company that can navigate all those, you know, as they say now, pivot. Right. You know, all those different pivots to make all those pivots because that's really the, the most important thing. To this, there's so much that he was all about that has become, you know, just the classical wisdom in in investing today. He was at Harvard. He was a professor now, very popular. The legendary manufacturing course, 1939, etc. The war is 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 ramping up. He gets pulled into it by Wild Bill Donovan, who was the OSS yeah. guy and a World War One veteran himself. Um, and Dorio too was a World War One veteran when he was in, was he in France as a young man. He was he was pulled into that. Uh, how did that all come together? And uh, maybe we can get into the the influence that that he had, the tremendous influence he ended up having in World War Two. Yeah. So, you know, basically what happened there was, you know, the war, you know, national the Nazis were ramping up their activities in Germany. The war, you know, they, they basically they launched this entire assault on Europe, and then things got really serious in the U.S. The U.S. began ramping up its um, wartime economy, and um, so the lead, the pre, up to the president, President Roosevelt actually personally recruited Dorio to join the military, and Dorio wasn't a, a U.S. citizen. So um, there's there's a there's a scene in the book where Roosevelt asked Dorio, um, do you want to, do you want to come fight for the, the U S forces he, and you need to become an American citizen? He's like, do you want to do that? He said, of course I do. So they made him a U S citizen. Um, but the reason someone like president Roosevelt was even talking to Dorio is because Roosevelt and his, his man, his team, uh, were basically asking, we need people to help you know, transition the economy from peacetime to wartime. And we need to do it fast. And Dorio was one of the people they realized was um, one of the, the key individuals who could help them do that, who could, you know, um, as, as it's described in the book, who could bring people together from different fields, different disciplines, and get them to work together towards a common goal, right, very, in a very efficient manner, in a very creative manner. And that's really why they brought him in, and that's why Donovan brought him in, and he worked for the quartermaster, which was the group of the military that was responsible for creating all the, um, and all the equipment, all the tools, all the supplies, all the food that the military needed to do its job. Yeah. These chapters on the war were stunning. I mean, uh, cars, rubber, food, plastics. He, he got pulled into everything, and he, he ended up being great at it somehow, cutting through the bureaucracy, getting the soldiers what they needed. How did he pull this off? What was he doing? Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Um, I think it started with that human element that we talked about. He was the first, he was one of the few people in the military who, who, who got everyone focused on the human individual um, because he saw he did, he saw he basically realized that you know the soldiers didn't have what they needed to, to fight right to, to their shoes. Like he, he he created a whole new program to like build a better military boot. Okay, like it, it seems kind of simple, but it's like that's that's literally like where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, he, he basically put in place a, a whole new way of invention in the military. And this is one of the key insights in the book. And one of the revelations to me was that I realized in my research is that he learned how to become a venture capitalist, um, through, through, through working for the military in world war two. 
Okay. And that to me was fascinating because, you know, I, like I said, I'm a history buff. I, I, I love military history. And there's so many things that ways that World War II changed our country. Historians have looked at, you know, from, uh, in, you know, integration, um, uh, you know, from, you know, the, the technology revolution that happened um, to changing the whole you know, geopolitical landscape. But one thing that has never been talked about is how, you know, the fact that uh, the guy who invented venture capital learned how to do it while running the military. And so, he, you know, one of the things he did was he brought, he basically hired special forces to go out uh, and, and sort of become an ethno, sort of an ethnographic research arm for him. And they would go out and they would like basically report back on the things that needed, that needed to be done, you know, from like the winter gear to the boots right. to the food, like the rations. He hired, he brought in like, food experts, nutrition experts from industry and help them create like K rations. All right. <laughs> um, sun, little things like sunscreen. The, w- one of the greatest stories is how he put together a team of experts that helped create, um, uh, Doron, which is essentially the flak jacket, right? Because he, 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 when he reports came back from the field that the, the pilots in the fight in, in the bombers were getting crushed by shrapnel um, and, and, and just a lot, like a high kill rate. He's like, they need better, um, armor. So he put together this whole program and they invented like a new form of high grade armor that ended up protecting, like, um, and saving a lot of lives. And that, that, then that got spun out into civilian applications too. Um, so those are just some of the things he did, uh, that helped, um, helped us win the war and, and, you know, and also, taught him how to bring, because that's what venture capital is in a lot of ways. It's like bringing people together from different areas and, and focusing them on one um, task and then giving them the support and the encouragement to, to, to get the job done and also getting the money too. He, he had a strong arm, all these um, business leaders, because a lot of his job was basically getting uh, the industrial um, uh, plant in America to convert to producing for the, for the war. So they had to get like all the car manufacturers. That was one of the first things he did. It was he corralled all the car manufacturers. He gave, he literally gave them like action points and like production targets to meet. And personally, would call them up on the phone to say, "Are you meeting your production targets?" <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, he put in place a rubber conservation program because like he realized he did forecasting that figured out that if we don't conserve rubber, we're not going to have enough rubber to make tires to put on the trucks. Uh, for the military, because there's an you know, incredible amount of trucks that needed to be made. So, and these are all things that like Roosevelt and and the White House approved. You know, they keep put recommendations forward that they approved. And so uh, he became very good friends with General George Marshall. Um, Marshall was a key ally of his, and they worked together to to buck you know uh, their higher ups to make decisions that that made sure the soldiers got what they needed in the field during like you know the winters. Uh, there was incredibly tough winters um, during the war that. Um, you know, that he, he made key decisions that helped them get all the, all the, all the provisions and equipment they needed to fight. It is unreal how far thinking this guy was, how resourceful he was. Uh, and he was totally dedicated. You know, there was not a selfish bone in his body. He was all about the mission. Uh, you have descriptions in, in these chapters where you talk about him, you know, maybe being the first person ever in the military to, go into the tanks and send people into the tanks and put the boots on and see if they even fit 
in where the confined quarters that the soldiers had to sit in. And, you know, these days we have the whole lean startup movement going through the country and Steve Blank and, quote, get out of the building and see it for yourself and customer development. He was doing that during the war. He was, as you just said, he was having people go out from the front lines and you, you say he wanted to hear it directly from them. You don't want any chain of command for that kind of information. He was just the nerve center of of the whole army on getting people what they needed in the field, what they really needed. To think yeah, and so, it's stunning. And he also created institutions that allowed these things to, to to continue after he was gone. So, like, there's a, there's a there's a there's a, a soldier research center in Natick, Massachusetts today that is still like the the leading place where the military develops equipment and that he, he, he created that, you know? So like, you know, he was a very, like you said, incredible foresight to not only do what needed to be done during that time, but it put in place systems and institutions that would help continue to do the, the important work in the future. And so he, he ends up becoming a brigadier general. So he has this incredible influence on, on world war two, you know, literally saving thousands of lives. No doubt. He's incredibly effective the war ends, and, and I know you say he still stayed on as an advisor in many different roles for many years, but how did this next step in his career arise, becoming the first venture capitalist? How did that happen? Yeah, so it's interesting that, the, you know, Dorio and a bunch of um, businessmen in New England actually tried to start what became ARD before the war. There was an effort in the like the late 30s to, to, to form this a new type of investment firm that could help fund new ventures. Um, and it came out of this realization in New England that the textile industry uh, was, was being disrupted in a sense. All these, you know, there was shoemakers, glove makers, um, all, the, all that was kind of going away. And, and they needed, they realized they needed to, to um, come up with a way to like start a whole bunch of new businesses and new industries and new markets. So they started to put this together and then the war happens and they put it on the shelf. They put it on the shelf. They, they had no choice. After the war ended, they basically like dusted off that plan and they revived it. And they, you know, it, it was, it, the timing was much better because uh, we'd won the war. Um, you know, the economy was on, was on much firmer ground. And, and it was an incredible like moment in history where there was a lot of energy coming out of America at that time where like we, we invented all this amazing wartime technology. Um, and so they, they, they dusted off the idea and they put together, they founded AR American research and development. Um, and there were some key players from like New England, like Carl Compton, who was the head of MIT, um, uh, and, and Ralph Flanders, who was a Senator from New England. Um, and they, they, they were able to raise money. It was only like their first fund was only like $3.4 million. They were able to raise money from, uh, a bunch, mostly like university endowments, which is interesting because that's still the, you know, one of the primary ways that, you know, venture firms get in limited partners stays through endowments. Um, and they raised the money and they basically got off and running. It was like 1946. Like you said, it was a tiny fund from from today's standards, three point four million. Uh, you list uh, MIT as an early LP, Rice University, University of Pennsylvania, University of Rochester, and even individual angels. There's like a five k minimum. Invest <laughs> in this fund. I wish I could have invested. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been great? Um, yeah. So so literally, they cobbled this together, and 
it was like no one even, this was a new thing. No one really knew what it was. These were all pioneers. Everyone who got involved. Was it a public company right off the yeah. bat? Or what, what was the was so that was That was the other, that was the thing that is almost, people don't even understand today. But they set it up as a publicly traded company. Okay. Um, and so it actually was listed on the New York stock exchange and, you know, because of the learnings that came out of that, um, situation where, and we'll talk about this in a minute, probably, but ultimately Dorio and all the people involved in this realized that it wasn't optimal to have a venture firm organized as a publicly traded company because of the way the securities laws were written. Um, and that, um, one of the legacies of Dorio is that, the people that left ARD because they realized this became the pioneers of the next wave of venture capital. Greylock, Greylock, which is one of the top firms today, was started by an alumnus of ARD called Bill Elfers. Bill Elfers. Yeah. So, yeah, as I was saying, ARD was set up as a publicly traded company. And like with anything new, there was an incredible amount of skepticism around what they were trying to do. And it, it took them many years to actually – um, prove out that this would could, this could work, um, and, and it wasn't until like the early fifties where they they because they started investing in all these companies, um, and, and being a public and, you know being in a public company, it's like everyone kind of knows what's going on. It's 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 hard because there's so much scrutiny of what you're doing, and so their net asset value would traded at a very low below uh, the mar- the market value for a long time, um, and but finally. They started investing in some of these companies. Like one was High Voltage Engineering, which is their biggest early success. Uh, it was an early um, innovative company that that took uh, like uh, you know basically ra- radiation technology um, and converted it into, into for com- commercial use. Right. So that was that 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 company was a was a key investment for them, and it started getting a lot of contracts, um, and then that that filtered back into their, into their stock price. And you could, you know, and after that, they turned a corner basically, um, in the early fifties when some of their early investments started to, to gain traction. Right. Right. But it was, it was tough going. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, that chapter, uh, in your book describes those first few years, you know, they're, they're being very selective. You know, they're looking at hundreds of wacky ideas, as you say. Uh, actually, a lot of stuff out of MIT early on they funded. Yeah, that was interesting ton of too. Stuff. Ton of stuff. And they were they were choosing their spots, and you know, making like you know, this is like the first seed fund in in, yeah. in world history. I mean, they're making fifty thousand dollar investments, two hundred fifty, maybe three hundred sometimes, but they're maybe doing four or five a year, right? And they're they're searching high and low, but and then their investors, many of them. As you point out, you know, half of them didn't know what they were getting into. So they're like, well, where are our returns after year one, year two? Yeah, they were very <laughs> <That's> ridiculous. <laughs> they wanted those returns quickly. And then and one of the things Dorio taught everyone is that you, it's a, it's a, this is a long-term deal. You have to be very patient and you've, you've got to, you know, it's like a five to seven year period before right. you can see if you're going to make money or not. Right. right. They, didn't, they didn't know. The, the investors, the LPs were like, where's my money? Give me a dividend, right? And he's like, they no, 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 no. Yeah, they want a dividend. That was, that, yeah, that was one of the big <laughs> arguments for the first five to seven years. It was like they wanted dividends. And Dorio was like, no, we do not pay dividends. We need to reinvest our capital. And again, it's like something that would be like seen as absurd today that a venture firm would pay dividends. But um, again, they didn't know what they were doing. 
Right. So that's why things but, like that happen. But this pioneer, he's standing there. He he's been through in the military, and he's saying, "Guys, wait. This the, the, these are young upstarts. It's going to take time to build up, to build scale. You know, it's going to take years." And uh, he was he was falling on deaf ears. So, but you were saying finally after all this struggling, you know, four or five years, you said he kind of turned the corner a little bit. Some of these businesses were starting to make money. What was going on? Yeah. So they, you know, there was there's a couple other companies besides high voltage engineering that um, that 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 became successful. But the the real the real turning point was when. Uh, ARD invested uh, about seventy thousand dollars in Digital Equipment Corporation in the mid fifties, um, and Ken Olson, who co-founded Digital Equipment, um, came out of MIT, wow. came out of the Lincoln Laboratory, which was one of the premier military research facilities that invented like the first computers. Mm. Um, and so, uh, Ken Olson, who led the, one of the big projects at Lincoln Lab. Uh, you know, he teamed up with another of his associates, Harlan Anderson, and they they decided one day that they wanted to create their own company to to sort of commercialize this computer technology. And they put together a business plan, and they got turned down by a lot of people. Eventually, they heard about this guy Dorio. They met uh, Dorio, uh, became intrigued by this idea. Um, and, and, and they did a lot of due diligence on it and they decided that it was going to, it was going to be a good opportunity. And so they put in $70,000 for, uh, a majority of the company. And, and this became like the, the storied partnership of venture capital. Uh, and they basically developed this business together and it was the first mini computer wow. maker. Wow. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of ups and downs. And the story of Digital Equipment Corporation, but ultimately it became a huge success. And the, there's a whole chapter on this in the book because it, you know, as as people know today, the venture capital it's a home run business, right? Um, you need like one superstar company in your in your batch that's going to basically cancel out a bunch of the failures. Although ARD didn't have a lot of failures, they had mostly had successes, but. Digital equipment was by far the biggest success. So the $70,000 investment when Deck went public ended up being worth, I think, four, around $400 million. So it was like a 70,000% return on investment. And so that was the moment when Dorio was vindicated. All these like years of skepticism and criticism that he endured in, in public, uh, he finally was able to claim victory because he showed – you could take a small amount of money, nurture, put it into a company, and nurture these companies over a long period of time, and it could grow into an enormous um, success, right? Yes. Um, and and not only make people money, but create tons of jobs, uh, create incredible innovation uh, that helps your economy, that helps people get good paying jobs. And, uh, and, and it was the first time it had ever been done. And then, and taking that company public, like fascinated, captured the imagination of a lot of people in America and in wall street. And it, it kind of it opened the, it became like the blockbuster IPO basically, wow. right. Wow. That everyone was like, wow, we gotta, we gotta get more of these companies. Show you around, give you a taste of the business, you know? <laughs> 